May the church be known for instigating life. May we be spark plugs for the life that God wants to bring about in the world, for opening doors and fighting alongside those who are despairing, for those who wonder if their own lives are expendable. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. Well, my brother Brent and I, who's uh, Brent's three years younger than me, <clears throat> when we were little, we would create all the time on the brink situations in our play. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like where at the last moment, we would, we would find a way to rescue ourselves from the bad guys, all right? <clears throat> so at the last moment, we would break out of jail like they do in Silverado, where we were clearly unjustly imprisoned. Uh, we would find that perfectly placed rock, that jagged rock or that piece of glass so we could, you know, quietly and discreetly and patiently uh, cut through the rope that was binding us and the, just at the last moment before the bad guys finally eliminated us. And then, of course, a favorite way to do this was by trying to do our best Josie Wales impression. Uh, any outlaw of Josie Wales fans out there? So we would take our little toy pistols and we would turn the butts forward and act like we were surrendering and handing over our guns. And we had practiced the, the famous gun flip where we would flip them back over and then we would take care of all the immediate threats. That was our favorite way. Um, Josie Wales, the outlaw Josie Wales, uh, played by Clint Eastwood, is, is one of the greatest revenge movies that you could ever see. I was asking a friend earlier this week, you know, what are your favorite revenge movies? And it's hard not to pick a Western, you know, maybe especially if you're from this part of the world. Like so many Westerns are just classic revenge stories. The Cowboys was one that was mentioned. And so, you know, I don't know what your favorite revenge story might be. There's clearly a whole series of uh, characters, you know, Marvel characters called Avengers. So we love those movies, you know. Um, so I love the Old West Code, and at its best, it teaches us that justice and that we cannot tolerate crimes against one another or against God's creation or things like stealing horses. <laughs> we don't tolerate that. Um, however, along the way, in learning that story and that code, I also picked up somewhere the gospel of taking matters into your own hands. Does anyone know this story? The gospel of taking matters into your own hands. I trained myself at a fairly young age to carry hatred and wrath at the injustices that I perceived. Some of them were valid and some of them were completely invalid and made up. And I have carried at times, and too often still carry, enough hatred inside of me to take life away, to harm one of God's creatures, to beat someone to death, or to tear them apart with words. The fifth word in our series on the Ten Words, or the Ten Commandments, from Exodus 20, is starting a series of very short ones. It has its own paragraph, and it's just two words. No murder. No murder. That's it. Now, we translate it, 
you know, you shall not murder or something like that, but it's really, in the Hebrew, it's just no murder. Uh, the Hebrew word here is teratza. It's, uh, it's taking life away. It's illegal killing. It's killing illegally, taking life away in a way that harms the community. It's vengeance. It's blood killing. Now, we're in this series on the Ten Commandments. And remember, the heart of these words is for God's people to learn how to live together so that life might thrive. Right? This is not just a string of things just to tell people so we can limit and restrict our, our desires and capacities. This is showing us how to live in a properly fenced-in area so we can get along with life. Uh, so we understand that God has rescued us, that he's set us free. I am the Lord your God. I've brought you out of the land of Egypt. I got you out of slavery so that you could live, right? So that you could live a great life and model that life and that you could tell the world about me because I'm a God that loves the whole world and I want the world to know that there's freedom in me. So that's the heart of these words and we're going down the list and just looking and this is in-house language, remember? This is like the kind of things that we draw up for our kids to understand. It's like, I don't know what you're going to do when you leave this house, but while you're in this house, these are the house rules, <laughs> all right? So it's not, it's not for the neighbor kids in the community. It's for my kids, all right? So God is saying, this is, this is not, I'm not talking to everybody out there. I'm talking to my people who are going to live together in a holy community. And in this sense, we can look and say, this is Jesus when he's with the Ten Commandments. He's like, I'm talking to the church. This is how we're supposed to live. So, I can think of at least two sources or motivations for murder in the Old Testament. Now, there are probably more, and we could parse them out a little differently, but they happen really quickly in the story. Do you remember Cain and Abel? Do you remember how quickly that came about after the creation of humanity? And two brothers out just going about their business, and one gets angry and a little jealous, and the crime of passion arises, and he murders his brother right there in their land. Remember Moses, who was really angry at the injustice towards his people and flies off the handle and kills somebody before God calls him to become this great liberator of the people. These are, these are murders of, of passion, right? Where it's, James talks about this in the New Testament. He says, you wonder why there's war among you, why there's so much stuff going on. He's like, you don't have a handle on your passions. They're out of control. You just, you go over here and do this because you want to, and you go over here and do this because you want to, and your passions are just this out of control, raging fire, and anybody that stands in the way, it's, it's going to be eliminated. So you wonder why they're there. That's why they're there. And it, it happens in the Old Testament. I mean, Cain is just... He's up to here with envy and rage and wrath, and he just takes care of business. He takes matters into his own hands, and his brother is gone. Another reason that we murder uh, is because it's convenient, right? It's convenient. Sometimes we get ourselves in a bind, and we need to cover something up, and so we eliminate life to cover up what we've done. Remember David and the Bathsheba story and how he ends up murdering Uriah, not as a crime of passion, but as a carefully calculated way of covering up the mess that David made to serve himself. So at least two ways that we take life away, these crimes of passion, as it were, and then just sort of this good old-fashioned cover-up story. And then, of course, we hear those stories, and we read the Old Testament, and we read no murder, and most of us go, well, whew, this is at least one commandment I don't have to worry about, because I haven't killed anybody lately. Um, 
But of course, it gets a little more personal as you read the rest of the story. And then as you open the New Testament and very early in the pages of the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, y'all have heard it said you shouldn't murder. You know, you shouldn't literally take life away. But I say to you that whoever is angry with their brother is liable to judgment. So Jesus draws this connection between murder and anger. And then the other New Testament writers carry that out. It was an obviously a very important thing. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul talks about it. James talks about it. John talks about it in his letters. It comes back around. And as we talk about the connection between murder and anger and what this word has to say to us today, or is it just an archaic thing that we just, you know, dismiss until we get onto the ones that feel a little closer to home? My goal for today, and I think part of the heart of this word is when we read it, that we would seek healing and forgiveness for the rage and the wrath and the vision-blurring anger that's inside of us. That we would seek for the freedom and the healing from that. As I was reflecting kind of final notes on this yesterday, it occurred to me that Sometimes the fiercest anger that we ever see is the anger that we hold towards ourselves, right? We may hold back a little bit with others, but we'll pour the full measure of hatred upon ourselves. Seeking healing and forgiveness from that. And then the second thing, moving on from there, is what's the positive dimension of this word? If we're commanded to not take life away, then what is it going to look like for us to make room for life? How do we give life? How do we stand as channels and avenues and causeways of life? That's what God is up to. That's what he's doing. So how can we participate in life? All right? Healing from forgiveness from the ways that we've been involved in murderous hatred. And then how can we participate in life? And... I'm going to say this a couple of times just because I think this is a really, this is one where we tend to carry a lot of shame uh, for things that we've done or things that we've been accomplices to or things that we've seen happen and, we, and they just kind of slowly chip away at us. This is designed, I mean, complete healing and freedom from these things. That's, where, that's what we're after. That's where we're going. We don't want to carry this kind of a shame so that when we talk about a moral code, we go, oh gosh, well, I blew that one, so all bets are off for me living a holy life going forward. That's why we come together and we confess our sins and we're healed and we receive the Lord's Supper and we're reminded that Jesus died for us and he loves us so that we can get back on track. So we've all had our hands in these situations and we need forgiveness. There's no shame among the people of God here. So what are some ways that we take life away, that we see life taken away all around us? Uh, in many ways, uh, people have observed for years, the church has observed for years, the leaders of the church, that we kind of, this is one of the areas where we tend to lull ourselves to sleep. We would definitely say that in Nazi Germany, the church was lulled to sleep. Right? They had blinders on. And we wonder, like, how could they sit in their pews every Sunday and like, watch what was happening? But it was just kind of, you just get desensitized to it. And we fall asleep a little bit at the ways that life is taken away, especially if it's not literally in our own backyard. So it's just easier to kind of back off. 
John Paul II, Pope John Paul II wrote in 1995 when, when he was a pope, and his encyclical that year in 1995 was called The Gospel of Life. It's a beautiful document that all, many denominations have looked at and studied over the years because it's just a way of saying we as the church are champions of life. We should be advocates for life at every turn. And John Paul in that address identified what he called a culture of death. He said in the world today, now this is not just America, this is all over the world. He said we live in a culture of death. And he wrote some particular things about that. And, and there's, there's a lot. I'm just going to read this paragraph because I can't say it any better. But again, think, what does this do with our imagination when we hear these words? What things do we see in the places that we've been in the world and the things that are in our care? John Paul says that there's a, there's a culture of death in anything that is opposed to life itself, such as any type of murder, genocide, abortion, euthanasia, willful self-destruction, whatever violates the integrity of the human person, such as mutilation, torments inflicted on the body or mind, attempts to coerce the will itself, whatever insults human dignity, such as subhuman living conditions, arbitrary imprisonment, deportation, slavery, prostitution, the selling of women and children, as well as disgraceful working conditions where people are treated as mere instruments of gain rather than as free and responsible persons. All these things and others like them are infamies indeed. They poison human society. And this is the one that got me. They do more to harm those who practice them than to those who suffer the injury. Moreover, they are a supreme dishonor to the Creator. Now again, there's no shame here. These are, these are designed to, to shine light on the areas that we can see these things and to work towards healing. We all find ourselves in those kinds of places and we have much sympathy and compassion for people that make choices when they feel like they don't have any other choices. So we have great compassion in those places and that's part of the way that we bring life is by standing with people who are making these hard decisions when they feel like they don't have other options. The church is called to the gospel of life. We are to welcome the growth of fortitude in our own hearts and in our own communities that we might live as light and as hope. I love the way Martin Luther summarizes this commandment. So he's, you know, he's trying to teach them to families and kids and he says, of course, you shall not murder. And he said, what does this really mean? I mean, if you're talking to your kids or you're discussing this at dinner, what does it mean to not murder on a day-to-day -day basis? Because remember, throughout the church, they've used the Ten Commandments as, as just kind of these everyday language that we learn that helps us become disciples. And so here's what Luther says about, the ten, about no murder. I love this. We should fear and love God so that we do no harm, but rather support and help our neighbor in all life's trials. Isn't that great? Doesn't that kind of expand the horizon to involve all of us? We should love and fear God such that we do no harm to our neighbor. It's like the Hippocratic Oath or the first rule of being a Methodist back in the day was simply do no harm. You do a lot of good by working hard to do no harm. We know this. So that's what we're up to as we're trying to live this out. And I do want to say that 
and we'll talk more specifically about this, uh, the, the text that Becky read for us in Romans. But it is a good thing, and in fact, a necessary moral thing, to be outraged at evil. We should never see evil and say, oh, well, you know, that, that stuff comes and goes. We should be outraged at evil. But what we do with that anger at evil, that's where the, that's where the turn happens. And of course, of course, not all anger is the same. There's an anger that's a just and righteous anger. And then there's just this sort of out of control wrath where we're, we're just, our vision is blurred and we're just, we're slobbering and losing our minds, okay? There's very different expressions here. So it's good to be outraged at evil. Evil is not from God. I've heard people talk about this as though God created evil. Like God just introduced some evil so that we could, you know, get a feel for what life's like in the real world. God did not create evil. This was not his idea. Evil entered to the, in the world because of us and because of Satan. And this is how it all came about. We read about this in the early chapters of Genesis. God does not tolerate evil, ultimately, and neither should we. So Becky read for us the Romans 12. You know, just the, this great line that I need to just carry around in my wallet. Leave room for the wrath of God. Isn't that a great thing to memorize? Leave room for the wrath of God. And that reminds me, A, that there is wrath. God is wrathful at injustice. And he, things will not go unpunished. But my work then is to leave a little room for God to do his work and not try to take it all upon my shoulders as though I could think about it. This is why the Israelite law was so strong, why we created these cities of refuge and stuff, and why we, we talk about in the States a right to a, a fair trial. That's part of what it means to not murder. Um, I've got a buddy uh, and, and his family with their three kids. They serve as missionaries, as Christian missionaries in Albania. And Ethan and I FaceTimed with them a few months back, and they were talking about what it was like to be in lockdown. And, and uh, anyways, Jamie uh, Wallen is the guy's name, and he was saying, hey, Ethan, here's something kind of interesting about Albanian culture that you might not know. And he said he pointed to the hills out their window, and he said, out there in the rural hills of Albania, you will still find in villages a giant tower, just like this giant stone tower that's like the Rapunzel Tower. And before you laugh at Rapunzel is a totally ludicrous thing. Like, remember what it's like to have a teenage daughter. And you're thinking, like, Rapunzel's not all that bad of an idea, right? So the, but anyways, he's like, this was not designed for Rapunzel, but these towers were built as cities of refuge. So if someone was accused of murder, they stuck them in the tower and they guarded the tower. It's like, until we can have a fair trial for this guy, we can't just, you know, execute him right away. So anyways, th th there's room in God's law for going about this the right way, leaving room for the wrath of God, heaping burning coals on the head of our enemies. We should seriously, we should take our enemies seriously. We should leave room for the wrath of God. And we have real enemies and we know this. I also think too many times in today's culture we make enemies when we don't need to. You know, people could really use friends right now as evidenced by pretty much anything you can see on social media. The statistics on isolation and depression are staggering. And yet so many of us, our disposition on social media is, let's see who I can pick a fight with today. Let's see how many enemies I can make today. May we be known for instigating life. May the church be known for instigating life. May we be spark plugs 
for the life that God wants to bring about in the world, for opening doors and fighting alongside those who are despairing, for those who wonder if their own lives are expendable. I want to close by reflecting on Jesus on the cross. God permits the murder of Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago. This is what Jesus does with his strength. One who is perfectly innocent and pure climbs upon a cross and is murdered at the hands of the Romans. And we have come to understand that in the sense that Jesus died for the forgiveness of the world's sins, we are all responsible for the murder of Jesus. It's not just the Romans. It's not just Pilate who's washing his hands. And therefore, Jesus stands in today as the new Abel. Cain's brother, Abel, one unjustly killed. Jesus, perfect in every way and entirely without sin, is crucified in solidarity with all those who have been unjustly murdered. When Cain murdered Abel, God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And we rejoice today that God has heard that cry. He's heard the voice of Abel's blood. And God, in this way, we believe as Christians, vindicates the blood that is spilled in anger. God vindicates the blood that is spilled in cover-up. And I have to believe and hope that God gives back the years somehow at the resurrection of the just. And God promises to bring judgment for life that is taken away. This is good news, which invites us to remember that we share in the great work of nurturing life, holding on to the ark of God's salvation history, that these three remain faith, hope, and love. When evil is vanquished and all death is destroyed, the ways that we have participated in life will live forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.